Hello, my name is Jody Lima, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Just a reminder once again before we get started that New Dream Gardens podcasts are now posted on the first and third Monday of each month. Today, I'm going to be interviewing author and literacy expert Pam Allen about the children's classic Anne of Green Gables by Ellen Montgomery. We're also going to be talking about a project that Pam is deeply involved with, a World Read Aloud Day, uh, which is coming up on February 5th, 2020. So if you want to learn more about what that's all about, just keep on listening. But first, as always, I'm going to start with a poem. And the poem today is a very short one, and it's called The Porcupine. It was written by Carla Cuskin, and I found it in the poetry book called Big, Bad, and Scary, uh, which are poems collected and illustrated by Wade Zaharis. The Porcupine A porcupine looks somewhat silly. He is also extremely quilly. And if he shoots a quill at you, run fast, or you'll be quilly too. I would not want a porcupine to be my loving valentine. My guest today is Pam Allen, who is a literacy expert, author, motivational speaker, and senior vice president of innovation and development at Scholastic. She's also executive director and founder of LitWorld, an advocacy group for children's rights as readers, writers, and learners, and creator of World Read Aloud Day. You can find more information about Pam and what she does at www.litworld.org. Thank you for joining me today, Pam. Oh, thanks for having me on. I mentioned you're founder of LitWorld. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what that is and, and, and what LitWorld does? Oh, I'd be happy to. Yeah, we um, founded LitWorld 11 years ago, and the idea around LitWorld was really thinking about as much as we love um, organizations that are providing books to communities and how important that is, we felt that the missing piece was really about how we build community around those books. And Lit World was created for that reason, children and young adults and people of all ages alike craving and, and loving to be part of a literacy community. So we, our intention for Lit World was to work side by side, and that is what we have done with local communities around the world, um, many different cultures and linguistic perspectives and people from far and wide, rural, urban, everywhere, uh, to really co-create together with them their idea of why and what matters to them about literacy. And so each community that we work with, um, we've done some great things together that are some of those things are things we end up doing across the world, like World Read Aloud Day or Lit Camps or Lit Clubs. But other things are very particular to the communities, um, asking and thinking together, wondering together, co-creating together what the, the the purpose and use and beauty of literacy is in their community. So we've, we're very proud to say that we work in 26 countries, and um, I've turned the leadership over to one of my longtime colleagues, Dorothy Lee, and uh, she's amazing, and, and LitWorld is, is going strong. And what kind of results do you think you've seen uh, from the uh, creation and, of course, uh, the development of LitWorld? Well, you know, it's interesting because when we first started LitWorld, our, you know, our dream was to make sure every child and every young adult would feel 
a sense of belonging and to the power of literacy and a sense of that freedom and agency that literacy brings to everybody. But one of the things, in addition to the fact that young people growing up in lit world communities feel that way and are exerting that power in their academics and persisting in school and, uh, and really thriving as members of their communities, we are also seeing something else that that's been really a beautiful thing. And that is that the community based organizations themselves with whom we partner and who have helped us to know and, and understand the communities that we uh, travel in together, they've also been strengthened by the power of literacy. So it's been a, a real joy to watch community based organizations that we've worked with from the beginning grow and develop and become incredibly strong and powerful. And also just the individual lives of, of young people um, feeling that literacy has become a lifelong companion for them. And literacy is so much more than just getting people to read books. It's a very important part of uh, people's growth in their lives in many different ways. Yes, and at LitWorld and uh, in other uh, venues, we identify literacy as reading, writing, speaking, and listening. And I think even at LitWorld, I think we, we've added one more component, and that's viewing, um, looking at the world, watching a film, looking at art, looking at print, reading a novel, reading a, a, a magazine, reading a blog post. All of those things are, are literacy. And then the act of writing, you know, we always say at Lit World that reading is breathing in and writing is breathing out. And uh, we feel very powerfully that all of those pieces go together. And when I came to Scholastic, here at Scholastic, we are really scaling up a lot of the Lit World programs. And one of the, the major programs that we're scaling together is called Lit Camp. And at Lit Camp, we put a big emphasis on the idea of literacy as a real all-encompassing tool that is, yes, about reading, but also, yes, about writing, and then further about this idea of speaking and listening in the world, that your story really matters. And so literacy is really at the core of it. It's everyone's personal freedom is right in there. I can tell my story, you can tell yours, but also we can reach out into the world and hear other, other people's stories. Now, you mentioned that one thing, uh, important thing to come out of Lit World was the uh, the creation development of World Read Aloud Day. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what happens on that day? Oh, yes. Well, we, you know, this started as a percolating idea uh, in our minds when I was reading aloud in a classroom and I was reading the children a book and, and everybody loved it and was so happy. And Afterwards, one of the little boys came up to me and said, I wish we could do that all the time. And I said, well, why don't you get to do that more? And he said, well, we have to, you know, practice for the tests. And I said, but, you know, the read aloud actually helps you do well on the test. When you get read to, you actually, it helps your brain. And he said, we should tell everyone that. He said, we should make the read aloud famous. And I, I thought to myself, well, that is actually a great idea. And I said to him, what would be your thoughts on that? And he said, well, when it's my birthday, people really pay a lot of attention. He said, maybe we need to have a big party for the read aloud. And I really, that stuck with me. I loved it. And I thought, so I went back and, you know, Lit World was real tiny at that point. And my young, brilliant colleague said, let's, let's do exactly what he said, but let's use social media to make that happen. And we started to see that all around the world, people just loved that idea that they could 
uh, we invited them to choose whatever they wanted to read aloud and um, you know, in everybody's languages and so many different uh, ways that people have of reading aloud and where people were reading aloud and all kinds of things. And just step by step, it just started growing bigger and bigger. And when Scholastic came to partner with this idea, then of course, they could help us really spread the word far and wide. And now, you know, millions of people celebrate World Read Aloud Day every year. In fact, this year, or this coming year, it'll be February 5th, 2020. And I hope everybody listening will join us on that day too. All right. And what what is the power of reading aloud, uh, do you think, as opposed to reading sort of by yourself, which is also an important thing to do. But what, what do you think the particular uh, strength is or power of uh, reading aloud to other people? You know, it, it's, it's such a profound experience, even for the smallest baby, that sense of creating a a bond between the reader, the the speaker, the listener, and the book, that sort of triangular experience that it's creating uh, something very deep within everybody that even, like I said, the very youngest child recognizes. And the other thing is it's actually an incredible way uh, to immerse children and adults in, uh, marinate them, so to speak, in in the in the in the power of literary and informational text because people do write differently from how they speak and there's a lot of rich vocabulary in the read aloud there's a lot of opportunity for children to hear grammar and to hear literary language in a way that they may not get on their own at that age and so the idea that we're pouring that in that that's that's pouring in is also a way to leverage academic skills as well so the read aloud experience is both an emotional experience, a deeply moving emotional experience, and it's also an academic uh, experience. There are so many amazing studies that show that the benefits of the read aloud, children who are read to, in fact, are so, so, so amazing. And in fact, I think the, Amer the American Academy of Pediatrics, I think it was two years ago, came out with a statement saying they think it's so important that they're actually made a prescription for it, that doctors in wellness checks um, really check in with families to make sure they have that access to do that. And what, what I like to say too is that if you as an adult feel in any way hesitant about your own reading skills, remember your children are not judging you. Um, you can actually even just tell stories through the pictures. You don't have to read every word. Uh, don't, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Don't be afraid to, to boldly embrace the text because reading aloud is just one of the very best things you can do for your kids. I always say it's like taking a, a story vitamin. You know, it's just an incredible way to strengthen your kids' minds and hearts as well. Now, I know you've mentioned this, but when does it take place again? World Read Aloud Day will be this year. It varies slightly because we always like to have it during the school week. Um, on So this year it's going to be on February 5th, 2020. Um, and you can visit scholastic.com backslash World Read Aloud Day or litworld.org to find out more. We actually, one really interesting thing is we um, published a report, the Scholastic Kids and Family Reading Report, and that also sh has shown some very interesting points about the read aloud. Uh, what what this report, this re most recent one says is that more than 80% of both kids and parents actually really remark upon the read aloud time as a very important and special time together, and that since 2014, the percentage of parents reading aloud to a child in the first three months 
has gone up nearly 50%, which I maybe I, I, I want to say, I'll take a little World Read Aloud Day credit for that, that maybe we've helped to amplify that along with the American Academy of Pediatrics, of course. And then also that the number of six to eight-year-olds being read to five to seven days a week is up seven points in 2016. But we're still not seeing that when children get beyond that age, six and up, that that they're being read to anymore. There's an idea that maybe when you're reading on your own, you don't have to be read to. But I, I want to say that World Read Aloud Day is also a way to say that at all ages, it's a way to create bonds and increase skills all at the same time. Well, I know in my family that uh, we read to uh, both our boys uh, well into middle school when they could, you know, read on their own, but they still like the idea of reading, read, of course, reading much longer works and things like that. But, uh, you know, yep. that reading aloud was still an important part of even when they were old enough to read on their own. Absolutely. And I really want to reinforce that because it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be anything fancy. You could even be just reading aloud from a comic book or um, from the snippet of a song or from a blog post that you saw that you liked. And my encouragement to all parents and grandparents and caregivers and teachers, of course, is to continue reading aloud to young people well beyond the point they've been able to read on their own because there is something incredibly magical and important about it. And uh, it's you know something about that brain, the brain work that you do in listening to that kind of text following the story and also again the opportunity for the bonding but also then even beyond that especially in those middle school years the opportunity to have safe conversations about things that might feel really troubling to a young person or things they want to learn more about that they might you know maybe not have that conversation with you if you weren't doing a read aloud and uh, I just read a new book a young adult book today called Guts. It's a graphic memoir um, about a girl who's having some stomach trouble in her middle school, it's fifth grade or sixth grade time, and and she's anxious and and really the whole book is about anxiety and how she deals with that and how her parents help her deal with it. And I just thought this is an amazing. This would be an amazing book to read aloud. It's it's it would be just an incredible book. It's so honest and and yet you know there's so many things in it about her anxiety about her friendships and about you know being embarrassed in school and that kind of all goes right to her you know her tummy aches and but they're thinking about for myself thinking about reading aloud a book like that to our own daughters or to the kids that I work with in the middle schools it just opens up conversation that you might not otherwise have Oh, absolutely. I, I, I absolutely agree with all of that. <laughs> um, I think even as adults, you know, uh, be nice if we could uh, find time just to read aloud to each other. I agree. Mm -hmm. I agree with that completely. Now, the the book, particular book that you picked, started to swift, shift gears a little bit here. Uh, but uh, you, you, I asked you for a particular book, uh, a, a children's book that um, meant something particular to you, and you picked out uh, Anna Green Gables by uh, L. M. Montgomery. Um, this was first published a long time ago, published in 1908, and um, for readers, uh, those obviously this is a novel that's uh, pretty well known. For readers uh, who haven't read it yet, and I have to, I have to admit, uh, I had not read it before myself until um, you had picked this book. So it was the first time I had read it myself. So for other readers who haven't gotten around to reading it yet, can you talk a little bit of what it's about? 
Sure, yeah. Anne, um, Anne of Green Gables is the story of a little girl who is an orphan, and um, she lives on Prince Edward Island and goes to live with um, a, an older couple who don't have, well, they're actually brother and sister, um, Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert. And by happenstance, um, she ends up with them, although they had asked for a boy to come help them on their farm, they end up uh, greeting Anne. Um, and, and of course, there's some disappointment on the part of Matthew, who probably needs, he thinks he's going to get some, you know, young man to, robust young man to help him on the farm, and ends up, Anne comes into their lives, and both Marilla and Matthew are um, private, quiet, shy people in some respects, and strong people uh, as well. And the story is really of how Anne comes into this town, into this community, and she's this feisty, brave, redheaded, creative, imaginative person who really changes everybody in her community. She's she's she changes the way people are with each other and the way they look at the world and she is a an imaginative uh person who who has adventures and scrapes and feels big love for her friend Diana and for the world around her and some of the story happens in school where you'll meet other classmates of Anne's and, and but a lot of it is really about the relationship she develops with Matthew and Marilla, and it, it's just an amazing book. And when did you when did you first encounter this book? I think I was probably I would I think I want to say I was probably in, uh, maybe I was in just about to be in fifth grade. It might have been the summer before fifth grade um, when I read it. But I'll admit to you that I mean the reason I'm having a little trouble remembering that is because I read that book so many times. I think when I finished it the first time, I literally just started reading it again. And I'd have to say, I think I just did that for like two years. I, I, I can't, I can't even begin to, to, to imagine how many times I read it. And then of course there are other books in the series. So Anne grows up and like Harry Potter, it's not that common to have series where the character actually grows up. A lot of series, the characters stay exactly the same age. Um, all the time. And I was absolutely riveted by Anne, you know, growing up, going, becoming a teenager, uh, having a crush on, on somebody, you know, getting older. Um, I won't give it away if people want to read the whole series, what happens, but, um, there's so much to it. And, uh, and, and Lucy Maud Montgomery lived on Prince Edward Island and, um, and you know, there's a lot of autobiography in that, in that, in that book. Um, and so lots of people flock there to see her house. And I, I'll admit that I did it with my husband and our two daughters. And uh, we, we really, we all loved Anne of Green Gables. And to this day, it's just such an important book in my life. Obviously, the big appeal of the book is the main character, Anne. So what is it about Anne that makes her such an... Uh appealing character that so many people keep coming back to her and this book and other books, like you said, you know, it's, she's just like, the thing is she's so courageous. When you first meet her, she's this, you know, scrawny redheaded. She, she, she considers she's looking at herself through other people's eyes and she knows that they see this very plain looking, um, lonely orphan. And yet she doesn't hide from any of that. She embraces herself. She, 
in, you know, introduces herself to people by always saying, I'm Anne with an E, you know, it's like, I'm going to be who I am and I'm not going to be ashamed. She'll, she says, you know, I know that I'm not the prettiest one. I know I'm not. And it's just, I think it's such incredible. She's so bold in some way. And then also she's so loving. She's so kind. She sees Matthew who seems a little strange probably to others she sees right away what kind of person he is. And she also, the same is true um, with Marilla, who's pretty, uh, kind of could come off pretty tough on the exterior, but she somehow gets through and understands people. And so it's a very unique uh, depiction of, of a child because children really are capable of such enormous empathy. And I think it's almost a very unusual thing in a in a story in a children's story to actually see how Lucy Maud Montgomery was so capable of showing both the courage of Anne and the the courage she had to show to go by herself into this new land and this new world but also the way that Anne was healing other people and there's also a great relationship in the book between her and her best friend Diana and and at first, Diana is just entranced by Anne, just as we all are, because Anne can look at just a plain pond and say, look, look, Diana, it's the lake of shining waters. And everything Anne sees and everywhere she goes is something is better, something has changed, something is richer. And it's so joyous. It's so authentic. And in, in a way, I think so much a part of my work as an educator, I think, is about my desire to protect that in children, that open empathy, that the heart and the courage that they actually have in a natural way. And that is really, the world is very, very hard on children. And um, so I do, it's for me, it's a touchstone as to the, the, the power of childhood. And as you say, she's a very empathetic and kind character and she doesn't seek out trouble. Uh, but nonetheless, trouble seems to find her anyway, uh, in very sort of very humor, humorous ways. And I was wondering, do you have a favorite moment of this where she gets herself in a, a particular situation a little bit over her head? Oh my gosh, there are so many. And I agree. I mean, she is also hilarious. Like she's really, really funny. And I think that's part of the other thing is like, you know, how many how many books really, even especially in the, those days, were depicting funny girls, like really funny girls? And she is always making these kinds of, uh, she calls them scrapes. And, and Marilla says, Anne, Shirley, why are you always getting into all these scrapes, you know? Um, but one, I think maybe one of my many favorite scrapes of Anne Shirley was when she invites, she's so excited, she's decided to invite Diana over for like a formal tea because she sees everyone in the town does these formal teas and some of the ladies in the high society in town are always having tea. So she decides she's going to invite Diana over. They're going to dress in their finest clothes. They're going to have tea. They're going to have cake. And Marilla helps her and they prepare a lovely little feast. Um, now, I can't remember this exactly well, but you'll get, you get the picture. Um, and Diana comes in in her beautiful outfit and Shirley and Shirley is there and they're just so excited, both of them. And then she thinks she's pouring her, um, I guess some kind of juice, but it's actually wine cordial. And I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it. I, I don't think I've said that out. And, um, and, Anne and 
Diana just gets actually gets drunk because she they're just kids, you know, but Anne doesn't realize that she has taken uh, Marilla's uh, decanter. And I think she thinks it's just juice or she doesn't understand. She doesn't know. And Diana becomes completely just, you know, basically blitzed. And it's just a funny, it's, it's very funny. And also Anne is inconsolable because she feels that she's made a dreadful mess and she's very dramatic also. So when things, when these scrapes happen, she's always like devastated, which I also think is really funny. And then Marilla, who's a kind of, like I said, she's tough on the outside. She's tough, but tender on the inside. And that's what happens is that Anne really makes her heart warm and you know marilla just her own heart is kind of breaking for Anne that this disaster happened because they had put so much thought into it but that's one of the many many scrapes but but it's kind of one i love a lot because it's where you do see marilla and Anne's per Anne's relationship changing as well yeah yeah marilla is an interesting character for me uh almost second to, to Anne, really in many ways when we first meet her she's almost the complete opposite of Anne, or at least superficially, uh, and, and she starts off not knowing quite what to make of this young girl. But over the course of the novel, we um, she grows very fond of her. And I'm just wondering, what do you make of Marilla about who she is, who she likes to appear to be, and who might she really be? Well, I kind of felt like, yeah, I th oh, I really like that you said that. I, I really, I always felt that Marilla might have been unbelievably, but I think she was a lot like Anne and probably as a child, I, I just had a feeling that she was something so different than what she ended up being, but mm. that the circumstances of her own life, not being given a chance to express her creativity or to, you know, manifest her true spirit. I think she kind of closed herself off and became like, self-protective and gruff on the exterior. And, and, and yet I think what happened was she started to see what Anne was just totally herself. And I think that made Marilla start to thaw, you know, her, like all those defenses she had built in all those years. And I think that Anne recognized that. Um, and at first, you know, Marilla didn't want to open her heart to Anne, you know, you got this feeling like, she must have been hurt in her life in some way, shape, or form, and she she was not going to let in that that light. And but there's just no stopping, and and you know there was just no stopping that. And I think uh, I like what you said about the contrast between Marilla and Anne, and yet I also think and and in a way that like sort of sets Anne into more stark, you know, stark clarity in terms of how open and joyous she is in spite of the fact that she too has had a very hard early life as an orphan and living in, in an orphanage and then coming without anybody to support her into this new life. But I think that Marilla, there's a scene where um, she makes Anne a dress and there, that's also a, a very beautiful uh, kind of a tableau between the two of them. Um, and this sort of satisfaction of all the things that Marilla could do really well that she had learned how to do and, it's just a very, the, the kind of a, in a way I felt like Matthew was the more sort of traditionally maternal one. And Marilla was like the sort of fierce, you know, stereotype of a kind of paternalistic, this is how it's going to go. And these are the rules and Matthew being more tender. And, uh, 
and then Marilla like sort of feeling that soft and tender part of herself that she had been for whatever reason in her life unable to express. And we see at the end of the novel, they're just uh, get to the point where they're really inseparable uh, from each other too. Yes. And, and that's something I really love about the book is that I sometimes think a lot of young adult novels, there's so much pain and sorrow in them for obviously reasons that, you know, those are stories and the stories matter. And we're also seeking to understand loneliness or sorrow in our own lives. But I think the thing I loved about what Lucy Maud Montgomery did in Anne of Green Gables and all through all the books is that she leaves us a lot of room for joy and for healing and for forgiveness and for love and for uh, this sort of deepening of relationships and just a way that you can kind of be with those relationships. And I, I mean, I think that's why I just read the book over and over again, because I just loved when they did come to become inseparable and that sort of absolute sweetness between them. It's just such a, it was like almost just like a true joy to read. And I think that sometimes in, in life, you know, and especially in the world we live in now, I, I want children to have that, like, just, this is not going to be about anything other than there's no ulterior motive. It's just a, a, a matter of sitting with these people and knowing how much they love each other. And there, besides these two characters, Anne and Merle, there, I mean, there are a lot of characters uh, in the novel that we get to know. But I always thought that one other I think of as a character as I was reading the novel is actually uh, Avonlea itself, uh, the place. It almost, um, even though it's the setting of the novel, to me, it's almost like another character in the novel. It's so important. In other words, I don't think it would be uh, the same novel if it was set somewhere else. The setting of it is kind of essential to uh, what's going on. And I don't know what you thought about the setting uh, and how it impacts the story. Wow, that's, I love that. That That's so true. I think, well, a couple things about it is that one one is that I think that must be true for so many people because it is a place that so many of us have actually wanted very badly to go visit after reading these books. And because maybe we did, all feel that exact feeling that it's the place that sense of place has so much to do with the story of Anne and the story of, of Marilla and Matthew. Um, and, and so then the other part of it is that Avonlea and Prince Edward Island, it's like this sort of wildness around, you know, the, the sea is there. Um, the, the, the water, the waves, the sort of wildness of it, the way Anne had this kind of wildness, like she was just wildly herself. And then also this sort of beautiful green of the farms and the warm red sand of the beach and the, and this kind of way that the, the, the village of Avonlea and the way those characters kind of come and go into each other. It's like, you know, Mrs. Lynde is sitting on her porch while Matthew it goes by in his carriage to go to the train and everybody, you know, everybody can see what's going on all the time. So there's this kind of coziness, a, like a kind of a tableau on the, on this Island while all around there's sort of a fierce kind of sense of, you know, the way an island feels both incredibly safe and also there is danger. And I think the beauty of the island itself is something that Lucy Maud Montgomery, I think she loved that island. She loved living there and her house is still there. And 
the when we went and we looked, we, we were driving along these roads where you could see the blue, blue ocean and then the, the red, red sand and then the green, green, green fields. And I thought, this is no wonder Anne loved this so much. And speaking of Anne, too, that was interesting. I didn't realize it until I read the book that the the book actually takes us through Anne's life from age 11 through 16. I always I thought it was just a book about Anne as a young girl, but it actually we has her growing up into, um, you know, a, a teenager. And I'm just wondering, uh, when reading the the book, uh, in what ways do you see Anne changing or in some ways that she remains the same or how is she a different Anne in some ways at the end of the book than when she was at the beginning? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's maybe, um, something that I've always loved too about that book is that it's very gratifying to see her change. I think as much as I love her at the beginning, I love that she, I maybe, maybe, maybe a good example of the biggest change is like at first she's just absolutely horrified by her own hair. So she's always trying to change the color of her hair. Um, in fact, that's one of her other scrapes. And for anyone who hasn't read the book, I'm not going to tell you what happens because that is really funny also, but she, she really hates her hair. She despises it. And, um, she doesn't like, you know, the way people think of it. And she wants everybody to call her hair, not to call her hair red or carrot top, she wants them to call her hair Auburn. She loves vocabulary, you know, so she says it's Auburn. And But when she gets older, by the time she's 16, it's like she's really come into her own and she she embraces her own inner beauty as well as her exterior beauty. And I think that's pretty powerful. I love that we get to see that because in a lot of books you don't really ever find out. You know, you're kind of wondering, well, how did this character turn out? You know, how does this work out? And um, and I think in later books also the things she ends up doing are so gratifying because you, you say, okay, that, that makes so much sense about what she does professionally and all kinds of things that I just always feel in a lot of our young adult books, you, you just are left with so many unspoken, you know, unresolved, uh, thoughts about what happened to this character. But I think she changes in some ways she changes quite a bit in that regard, but in another way, she's still Anne, you know, she's always, as she says to Marilla at some point in the book, you know, I'm always going to be that Anne. I'm always going to say, I'm never going to be able to, you know, hold back my thoughts or my ideas. And it's like what we love about her. It's what we want her to always be. Now for uh, a number of reasons, this is the kind of book that's uh, ca- often categorized as a, a girl's book or a p- book particularly for girls. And I'm wondering if you think, is that fair or not, or does it even really matter if it is a girl's book? Well, my f- best story I could tell you about that is that I think, you know, she had, it's a double, double whammy on that one to get boys because number one, um, the title is a, about Anne herself. And number two, the main character is a girl and there are lots of societal pressures against boys from reading books, um, about girls with girls on the cover, unfortunately. Um, but the best thing that one of the best moments I would say of my, of, of, of my long and happy marriage is that, um, my husband, when we were re we, we listen, we had read aloud Anne of Green Gables to our kids, but when we went to Prince Edward Island, we decided we'd listen to it on tape and we were listening to it on the car 
all the way from the drive and then the, I don't remember exactly how it all came about, but we ended up, you go over this very long bridge and we were listening to, the, we were coming to the very end of the book, just coincidentally, it was like unbelievable timing as we went over the bridge onto Prince Edward Island. And again, for those who've not read the book, I will not tell you anything about the ending, but I turned to my left and my husband was driving and there were tears pouring down his face. I mean, he was literally sobbing and he turned to all of us cause we'd all read it already. And he said, how could you not tell me? How could you not tell me? And we were like consoling him on the way over. So it, it, it was a great book for him too. Um, I think that it's, it is a book I think boys would, would love just as much as girls. Um, I think there's still a lot of bias in the way we suggest what to read. Um, but I think, Anne, there's a lot that's very relevant right now about, you know, gender perceptions. And we could even read that book in a lot of different ways now that time has passed and we live in a different world now and could read that whole book through a gender equity lens. And it would probably be really fascinating. Yeah, this is a book that goes back a uh, 110 years. Like you said, it's it's um, like you went to Prince Edward. It's it's still a tourist attraction. Um and I was reading a little bit about it. Apparently, it's a um it's a very popular book in Japan as well. And uh not every book from 100 plus years ago, uh children's book or any kind of book, um has this kind of this long life. Um, so what is it about this book that so many books from that time sort of fallen away, but this book is still there. They're still making the books. They're making movies and television shows still about it. Why is, what is it about this book that still captures people's imaginations? It's near, very nearly, in my opinion, it's very nearly a perfect book. It's, it's, something incredibly deep about that image of a young child alone and having adults who also have wounds and and sorrows and hardships in their lives that these three people should come together in the midst of that you know kind of joint loneliness and create a family out of this surprise, this unusual circumstance of these three people. Um, I think it's like a timeless, timeless story. Somebody once said, you know, um, all of literature is, is that the hero, either the hero sets forth on a journey or a stranger comes to town. And I think in the case of Anne of Green Gables, both of those things happen. And I think the unlikeliness of a hero being, a little girl with two red braids and and a big imagination is such a a startling idea and i'm sure it was even more startling 110 years ago that must have been absolutely radical and i think that we i think those you know all of us who love this book and, and across the world i think recognize that even today that's pretty radical is there a particular passage from the book that you'd like to share Yes, I have one. Um, this is one of my favorite uh, parts of the book where Matthew is going to the train to pick up um, what he thinks is going to be a young man to help them on the farm that he's asked the people in the orphanage if they would 
have match him up. And so I love this scene. And um, here's, here's how it, it reads. When he reached Bright River, there was no sign of any train. He thought he was too early, so he tied his horse in the yard of the small Bright River Hotel and went over to the station house. The long platform was almost deserted, the only living creature in sight being a girl who was sitting on a pile of shingles at the extreme end. Matthew, barely noticing that it was a girl, sidled past her as quickly as possible without looking at her. Had he looked, he could hardly have failed to notice the tense rigidity and expectation for attitude and expression. She was sitting there waiting for something or somebody, and since sitting and waiting was the only thing to do, just then she sat and waited with all her might and main. Matthew encountered the station master locking up the ticket office, preparing to go home for supper, and asked him if the 5.30 train would soon be along. The 5.30 train has been in and gone half an hour ago, answered that brisk official. But there was a passenger dropped off for you, a little girl. She's sitting out there on the shingles. You know, honestly, I can't even read this without crying. I can't even believe it. I asked her to go into the ladies' waiting room, but she informed me gravely that she preferred to stay outside. There was more scope for imagination, she said. She's a case, I should say. I'm not expecting a girl, said Matthew blankly. It's a boy I've come for. He should be here. Mrs. Alexander, Alexander Spencer was to bring him over from Nova Scotia for me. The station master, master whistled. Guess there's some mistake, he said. Miss Spencer came off the, Mrs. Spencer came off the train with that girl and gave her into my charge, said you and your sister were adopting her from an orphan asylum and that you'd be along for her presently. That's all I know about, and I haven't gotten any more orphans concealed hereabouts. I don't understand, said Matthew helplessly, wishing that Marilla was at hand to cope. Well, you'd better question the girl, said the station master carelessly. I dare say she'll be able to explain. She's got a tongue of her own, that's for certain. Maybe they were out of boys of the brand you wanted. He walked jauntily away, being hungry, and the unfortunate Matthew was left to do that which was harder for him than bearding a lion in its den. Walk up to a girl, a strange girl, an orphan girl, and demand of her why she wasn't a boy. Matthew groaned in spirit as he turned about and shuffled gently down the platform towards her. Uh, can I read one more paragraph so that you can see? Oh, of course. There's yes, yes, absolutely. She had been watching him ever since he had passed her, and she had her eyes on him now. Matthew was not looking at her and would not have seen what she was really like if he had been. But an ordinary observer would have seen this. A child of about 11, garbed in a very short, very tight, very ugly dress of yellowish-gray wincey. She wore a faded brown sailor hat, and beneath the hat, extending down her back, were two braids of very thick, decidedly red hair. Her face was small, white, and thin, also much freckled. Her mouth was large, and so were her eyes, which looked green in some lights and moods, and gray in others. So far, the ordinary observer... An extraordinary observer might have seen that the chin was very pointed and pronounced, the big eyes were full of spirit and vivacity, that the mouth was sweet-lipped and expressive, the forehead was broad and full. In short, our discerning extraordinary observer might have concluded that no commonplace soul inhabited the body of the stray woman child of whom shy Matthew Cuthbert was so ludicrously afraid. So that's, that's, uh, that's the beginning. And right after that, too, she has a uh, well, they have a conversation, although it's really more of a one sided conversation where uh, we yeah. get to know Anne really well because she has a lot on her mind. Yeah. So I, I'll just read that really quick. Just that one little piece, because this will give you the taste, your readers, the taste of her. 
I suppose you are Mr. Matthew Cuthbert of Green Gables, she said in a peculiarly clear, sweet voice. I'm very glad to see you. I was beginning to be afraid you weren't coming for me, and I was imagining all the things that might have happened to prevent you. I had made up my mind that if you didn't come for me tonight, I'd go down to the track to that big wild cherry tree at the bend and climb up into it to stay all night. I wouldn't be a bit afraid, and it would be lovely to sleep in a wild cherry tree all white with bloom in the moonshine, don't you think? You could imagine you were dwelling in marble halls, couldn't you? And I was quite sure you would come for me in the morning if you didn't tonight. <laughs> it gives you a little taste of... Uh... Yeah. It's used a lot of words to describe Anne, but shy is not one of them, I think. <laughs> Definitely not. And Marilla has to, you know, throughout the, the story, Marilla will often say to her, Anne, you don't have to explain all of those things. But but then as their relationship deepens, you can see how much Marilla loves listening to Anne's stories and the way she describes things around her. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Pam, thank you so much for uh, picking this book and giving me a chance to read it. Uh, uh, and also uh, for taking the time to talk about World Read Aloud Day. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to spend time with you and with Anne tonight. What a wonderful way to to have time together and to, to remind me of why I love that book so much. And also uh, just to say, you know, for every age, the read aloud is meaningful. And it, for me tonight, too, just reading this aloud with you has brought great meaning to me. So thank you. Oh, and just one more time for those who are interested in World Read Aloud Day. I know you've mentioned this already. Can you just mention once again quickly uh, when it is and how a person can participate? Absolutely. It's um, World Read Aloud Day is on February 5th, 2020. 24 hours all across the world. We'd love everybody to join in. There are two ways to take a look. Um, one is at litworld.org, and the other is through scholastic.com backslash World Read Aloud Day. And uh, in both, our organizations work together and with many other organizations around the world to bring everybody of all ages together around the power of stories. So we hope everybody listening will join us on February 5th and um, and always, please feel free to read aloud to someone you love, someone you don't know, or just to read aloud with a loved one at home um, and let, let us all know about it because it, it really it does, does make the world a better place for sure. You can find more information about Pam and World Read Aloud Day at www.litworld.org. And you can find additional information about World Read Aloud Day at teacher.scholastic.com slash worldreadaloudday. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in the Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.